I got none. I'm gonna send you some. I'm gonna send you my vodka allocations. Yeah, That's I'll a, show you. You know, I'm I'm running out of like uh, hand sanitizers, so I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> This is Bourbon Pursuit, the official podcast of bourbon, bringing to you the best in news, reviews, and interviews with people making the bourbon whiskey industry happen. And I'm one of your hosts, Kenny Coleman. Well, the idea of owning a liquor store, it sounds pretty great, doesn't it? It sounds like you get to play around with booze all day, and you never have to worry about allocation ever again because you get to keep all the Pappy and Blantons for yourself. Well, that couldn't be further from the truth. It's a business, and it relies on margin to keep those doors open. And when those doors are open, you don't know really what you can expect next. Tony Concha, he's the owner of Keg and Bottle. And we've talked about Keg and Bottle a few times on the show because that's our partner store for all of our barrel selections. But the real reason we have Tony on the show is to talk about a deeper subject of the retail liquor business, and that's theft. No matter what you get into, any business whatsoever, you have to assume that there are terrible human beings out there, and they will take advantage of any situation. And so Tony gives us an introspective look into how he combats theft from a brick and mortar location, as well as online retail, and how this business has even had him held at gunpoint saying his last prayer. But with that, enjoy this week's episode. And now here's Fred Minnick with Above the Char. I'm Fred Minnick, and this is Above the Char. This week's idea comes from Christopher Patton, who writes me on fredminnick.com. Question for Above the Char. Assuming spirit trends are cyclical, when do you think the bourbon boom will end? What year and what would cause it? Well, Christopher, I think you have asked the loaded question of loaded questions, one that we have uh, talked about a lot on uh, on this show. But it's so good, and I think the timing is just right for me to kind of address this. Um, and typically, the spirits industry is a, a 30-year cycle. So when a spirit is on top that is a 30-year time frame. And basically, it is the, it's the measurement of the youngest drinking generation, legal drinking generation, to when they kind of stop drinking. That's basically how you have to look at it. And so uh, bourbon, the generation that right now all generations are drinking bourbon, which is pretty unique. But when we start to see millennials kind of get into the, uh, to the bourbon, bourbon side of things, you know, you're looking at between 2008 and 2012. Uh, so, you know, just uh, for simple math, say it was 2010. So if the 30-year run on on that, if it's if we do pinpoint 2010 as the year the bourbon boom begins, uh, then, you know, you're looking at 20, you know, 2040 before this thing uh, ends. Now, here's the thing. In my book, uh, Bourbon, the Rise, Fall, and Rebirth of American Whiskey, which if you don't have, you should go check that out. Uh, I did theorize what would uh, puncture this this bubble, what would create, what would end this. And one of them was tariffs. One of the things that I said would end it would te- was tariffs. And boy, was I wrong on that. You know, the tariffs that uh, came through did not um, did not really phase, did not phase uh, American whiskey. Well, it definitely hurt their international, you know, efforts. Uh, that is true. It did not uh, tank them, and uh, they made up for it in domestic areas. Some smaller distillers got hurt for sure, but overall, it did not hurt it. The other thing that I always thought would would hurt is like uh, like a pandemic or a war, 
uh, or or something like that that would kind of take the the world's mind and everything uh, off of like uh, luxury goods, which bourbon is considered a luxury good. And the pandemic came, and you know we're still in it, but it has not impacted sales. Uh, so the one thing that now I would say is like, we are, we have so many products on the shelves and the price points are getting out of reach for, for a lot of people. And I think that can, that can hurt it. But uh, bourbon's so strong. Uh, there's so many people into it. So many new people getting into it. The celebrities are circling around it. I mean, all the, all the signs point toward a very healthy, uh, industry that will continue, and I do think 2040, the 2040 time frame is when uh, we will see the end of this growth period. Uh, so I think we're still probably pretty early in it. It has survived two major world issues in the tariffs and a pandemic and not only survived, but thrived in those. So, you know, all things point toward it being healthy. The one thing that I could say could have some long-term damage to it and that's uh, some of the health-related issues that are being brought up consistently. Uh, right now, there is uh, a lawsuit against the federal government about putting cancer warning labels on alcohol. But that's not just uh, bourbon. That's all alcohol. So it, the, the greater issue to me, in my opinion, is for the alcohol industry and not necessarily bourbon. So thank you very much for uh, that great question. If you'd like to be like Christopher Patton, hit me up on fredminnick.com. That's fredminnick.com. Hit the contact button and give me your question. If I like it, I'll read it on the air. Until next week, cheers. Do you ever pour yourself a bourbon, swirl it around, and then start struggling to come up with tasting notes? And perhaps you're also looking for a good Father's Day gift idea. Well, you can now solve both with a kit from Nose Your Bourbon. And unlike other nosing kits on the market, Knows Your Bourbon kits feature real ingredients for the most authentic aromas. You can smell real Tahitian vanilla bean instead of some synthetic aroma that's just made from chemicals. So head on over to knowsyourbourbon.com and enter code BP10 for 10% off your order. Ed Bly and Rising Tide Spirits are back again with a new release of Old Stubborn Bourbon. And this release of Old Stubborn is a premium hand marriage of 10, 11, and 12-year cask drink barely filtered pot still bourbon. It comes in at a staggering 123.8 proof. And the flavoring grain for this one, which the last one was weeded, but this time it's now rye. Rich, sweet, and bold with a long finish that's sure to be another eye-opener. You can order online at Sealbox or thebourbonconcierge.com, and you can even purchase in person at Revival Vintage Spirits, and even now with very few select stores in Kentucky. You can get it now while you can, but be sure to do it because it's not going to last long. From their bar to yours, Chad and Sarah of the popular YouTube channel It's Bourbon Night bring you their favorite at-home old-fashioned mix with the new Elemental Elixir's Golden Hour Syrup. It's a custom-made syrup with notes of bold black tea, warm spices, and orange zest. All you need is your favorite whiskey and ice. No bitters needed. One bottle makes 16 drinks, so that's only $1 cocktail before you add your own whiskey. They can also be enjoyed in other cocktails or spirits, mocktails, coffee, tea, and anything you can think of. It's crafted locally in Lexington, Kentucky, and you can get your bottle now at whiskeyambitions.com.
And they're off for another Gift 270-2020 Unicorn Raffle. Your $20 ticket gives you not one, but two chances to win from our lineup of 20 Woodford Reserve treasures, including the grand prize, the rarest unicorn yet, the Woodford Reserve Kentucky Derby 150 Baccarat Edition. Only 150 bottles were made and is just like the one the Derby winning owner receives. Quit horsing around and get your $20 tickets now at Give270.org. Charitable Gaming License ORG 0002703. Welcome, everybody. We're back with another episode of Bourbon Pursuit, the official podcast of bourbon. Kenny and Fred here today. We're going to be tackling a subject that is, it's really fun to kind of talk about this because we talk to producers. We haven't really talked to many distributors yet. We've talked to a few retail people. And it's always the one thing that when we talk to the retail side of things, we learn another facet of the business that we had never kind of experienced before. And it could be everything from allocation. Well, usually that's what people really care about is, where's my damn pappy? But usually it's the allocation thing and really just running the business uh, of a liquor store and knowing exactly what you have to fight with when it comes to distributors, when it comes to brands. How do you know what to carry? How much to carry? Are you sitting on too much inventory? Are you eating this inventory? And today we're going to be talking about theft, which is something that is a really real thing in almost any business. But since you know, we're talking about liquor. I think it, it kind of, you know, we'll start looking at what that looks like, not only just from a brick and mortar side of things, but also from a, a internet shopping experience too. Yeah. If you look at, if you walk into any liquor store, there's always a glass case. There's all these things behind the counter locked. And those things are like that for a reason. And uh, you can go back as as the moment that liquor stores are around, they've been robbed. And you hear about liquor store robberies all the time, like gunpoint robberies, but there's also people just walking in and taking a bottle from here and there. And I've always been fascinated. It was like bourbon and in its boom, you know, and like, you just don't hear, you hear about it every now and then uh, of like some bourbon thefts, but it's not as much in our sphere as I thought it would be, you know, when you stop and think about the popularity of it. Like, when things get stolen in a liquor store, it's usually like something like Hennessy, like, you know, Pappy and stuff doesn't get stolen. And it might just be because it's not on the shelf. <laughs> I was about to say, you, nobody actually ever sees right. it happen. Yeah. No one's uh, willing to report it. How about that? True, true. Yeah, yeah, that got stolen. Can you can you replenish? Yeah, just go back to the, the distributor be like, it got stolen. Can you go ahead and just send me my, my backup order for it? I'm sure that happens all the time. Yep. Absolutely. Well, so you've heard his voice, but let's go ahead and introduce him. So today on the show, we have Tony Kanja. Tony is the owner of Keg and Bottle, which anybody that knows that we run a private barrel club and Tony has been one of our closest allies and be able to make that a success and everything like that. So I'm very excited to be able to welcome him on the show. So Tony, welcome, man. What's up, fellas? Good to be on. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And and I think before we go in and you know dive right in with the topic, I always want to kind of talk about how people got into this. And so kind of talk about a little bit of your background. I know that we've discussed how you got into this before because you were a CPA at one point, and then all of a sudden this business kind of fell in your lap. But kind of give people the the long-winded tale of sort of how you got to where you are. Sure. So I got to go back to the start. My dad immigrated to this country in the early 70s. And when I was just a little boy, 
in first business. He had a, a sister that was here that was in the grocery store business. So as all the siblings came over, they all kind of got into the one family business and helped that run. Eventually in 1981, he bought his first liquor store that was his own, not his sister's. And that's when really our first store happened. It was a small little store in Lemon Grove, San Diego. That was 41 years ago. But was that a keg and bottle store or was that something else? No, it was actually just called the name of the, the local street there, San Altos Liquor, right in Lemon Grove, California. And so that was our first one. A year later, he saved enough money and had enough credit to to do a second one. So he was pretty aggressive once he did his first one. So in 82, we did one in National City. Still was not called Keg and Bottle. It was called Highland Liquor because it was on Highland Avenue, as most stores are just kind of named for their area or the owner's name or whatnot. And then really, it wasn't till my older brother uh, graduated college and my dad said, hey, you know, get in the family business that the first Keg and Bottle was born. Um, that was named Keg and Bottle, coincidentally enough. So we didn't uh, come up with that name. I was still in college, and I'll tell you what happened and, and, and how we got to growing and whatnot. But they, they really pushed education. So I picked business just because naturally I grew up in my dad's store working since I was a little boy and picked business. Then they said, you got to pick a, a major. I picked accounting because I would help with the books. And then, you know, I graduated and they're like, well, you're not a CPA unless you go work. So I had to get two years of business uh, experience working for a CPA firm, getting 500 auditing hours. And so I did that for many years to, to do that. And then all the while, the entrepreneurial side of me just started doing people's taxes, you know, customers' taxes, because I still worked in my dad's liquor store, even though at that point I was a grad graduate of college. And so I started my own practice, still worked for a big firm, and eventually one of my clients owned the current store that we're in, in today, which is right near San Diego State, and he had to sell, and I was at the right place, right time, I was his accountant, and uh, bought that store. So Pops help, helped us out. That wasn't called Keg and Bottle. It was called Fair Liquor, which is just uh, the name of uh, the store here. And having the business experience that I had at that point, auditing national companies and, and seeing all kinds of accounting and books, I said, you know what, if I get back in the family business, I'm going to do it right. We're going we're gonna to do a little more corporate style. We're going to try to grow this thing. That was our fourth store. So I went to the family and I said, hey, here's what we're going to do. We're going to come up with a name. We're going to try to build this up and try to be a big force in San Diego. And so I hired a big company, paid them 5000 bucks to come up do this market research, to give me names, logos, all this stuff. And we ended up picking a store name that we already had, Keg and Bottle. So, <laughs> I mean, I still have the book. It's like this thick, right, of all the trademarks, all the names, how many different Keg and Bottles and how many different, it was like one-stop shop. I mean, every name in the book that they came up with, all kinds of crazy logos, and then we decided on Keg and Bottle and this logo. And the colors of this logo and the stars are very, um, have a really cool background story. So 9-11 happened in 2001. And I bought this store in December 2001. And if you all remember how patriotic this country was, I, I love that time of how close we all were as a nation and, and how we all were brothers and, and things didn't matter to anybody. And the red, white, and blue came out because of that, because um, we were in the design stage of that. And we're like, so red, white, and blue, the stars representing our country. That's how this logo came about. That's really cool. So another question I kind of want to talk about, you know, kind of growing up around this as well is, 
do you remember or asked your dad why he wanted to get into to owning a liquor store? I know it was the, you said the family business was kind of in the, in the grocery side of things. Was the liquor side just a natural extension or did he have some sort of prior history to saying, I think I can try to run a liquor store too? No, not really. I think uh, it was all he could afford to get into his own business. I know I remember him, uh, and I was a very young young man at 1981, I was nine years old. I remember him saying, we're all in. This is everything we have. So he borrowed, scraped from everybody money to, to get into this first store. And I remember vividly when we went in there, how excited the family was to go in there for the first time. We took inventory. The guys are handing us the keys. And then they, they took the money out of the till and they're getting ready to leave. And my dad goes, wait. And they're like, what? He's like, I don't have money to put in the till. You know, so literally every last dime in his pocket went to, into this first store. Even he had to borrow the 250 bucks to start that day from the previous owner. And that's what it all started. So it wasn't, um, it wasn't where he had experience. He was just a, a natural business guy. He had a business background and being in the grocery store business with his family uh, gave him that. So this was like a smaller version of that. It's what he was able to afford. When, you know, the topic of today's show is, you know, is, is obviously theft and grocery stores have a lot of theft as, as, as well. What was theft like in the, in, in the family business? Like what were, what were common things people would steal in a, in a grocery store? So on the grocery store side, pretty much the same and just so many more aisles. So there's more, more places to cover. And, uh, and that was truly a family business. My dad was one of nine uh, siblings and every one of them covered a different department. Um, you know, the meat department, the produce department, all those different things. So, but from a theft standpoint, I mean, you turn around and someone's stealing one way or another, whether it was someone that was really poor that just wanted to, to uh, you know, put some food on the table to people going in the liquor department and grabbing bottles because they have an addiction. So, I mean, it was all, it's all over the place. Mm. Well, a lot of little kids too stealing gum and getting caught in the parking lot, right? Like, uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, it, it's funny you say that. You know, there's little kids in here that will come with their parents and, you know, they'll take something, put it in their pocket. The parent doesn't notice and the parent will bring them back inside. And it's happened so many times that I kind of know the routine. So they want me to be the disciplinary guy to take it away. So there's oftentimes I, I take off my liquor store hat, put my dad hat on and say, you know, you can't do that. You're going to be in trouble. You're going to go to jail, you know, stuff like that. So it's interesting. You, you try to nip it in the bud when they're young like that, just to kind of, and it's cool when the parents bring it in, bring them back. I mean, obviously not every parent does that, but the ones that do, I know why they're doing it. And uh, I try to help them a little bit. I was going to say, like, how far did you take one of these sort of like playful encounters? Were they, were they calling and oh, saying like, it, hey, I want you to fake call the police for me or something like that? We've never done that, but it's quite often that the kid cries. Yeah. Like, you know, you, you take it to the point of you scare them. And most often times, depending on how old they are, right? Most of these kids are young and, you know, they just getting disciplined by a stranger and they start to cry, you know, then you feel bad. You're like, oh my God, what, I, what did I just do? And then the parents like in the background going, good job. You, know? <laughs> like you really, you really scared them straight yeah. on that one. So I stole a Hershey's bar from uh, the checkout line at Stone's Grocery Store in Choctaw, Oklahoma. And my mom found out I, t I had to go take it back in and then she beat the shit out of me in the car. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, I feel like that's what we need, though, as young, as young boys. Everyone wants something they can't have until they learn that they can't do that. You know, I think that's 
part of what's wrong with some of today's society where people don't discipline us enough like maybe our parents did because we'll we'll talk a little bit more later about all kinds of stuff that happens but there's some crazy stuff that happens in our business man i think it i think it's a good time to get into that well let's get into the crazy what do you guys want to know first? Well, I, I guess the, the kind of first thing is to start setting the scene a little bit because as a as a liquor store, and let's just say you, you got to take because you're you're looking after what nine stores, I believe, in San Diego. Yeah, now? there's ten, and, and I should say, you know, I'm I'm one of three boys, you know, and a sister. We're all in the business. There's uh, eleven locations, you know, counting my sisters. Ten of them are the keg and bottles. A couple of them have food, and they they, they carry the K and B bistro name where it's half a restaurant, half a liquor store, which is kind of cool, but definitely a, a full-on family business with them involved as well. And I also want to set and kind of paint a picture for everybody that has never been inside of a keg and bottle store before, because I've had the opportunity and pleasure of going out to San Diego and hanging out with you, Tony, and visiting a few of your stores. And you have this sort of recurring theme on how you do everything. And that's essentially what everybody wants in their house which are walls of liquor and you have to have ladders that get around. It's very much this like, oh my gosh, like eye-opening appeal as soon as you get in there. Can you kind of describe a little bit about that too? Absolutely. So again, the, the locate it happened first with this location, the one near San Diego State, you know, 22 foot ceilings. And when we started, there was about eight shelves high, so which is a standard liquor shelf in any grocery store kind of setup. It went halfway around. And we were sitting here one day, I was sitting here with my brother-in-law, and Smir- I, I blame it on Smirnoff. So Smirnoff came out with like 39 million flavors. I know it's your favorite thing in the world, Fred, <laughs> uh, vodka. And I'm like, I got to have them all. Yeah, keep in mind, I'm down the street from a major party college school, so I've got to get every, every flavor there is known to man of Smirnoff but I had no room to put them. So we're looking at the wall and we're like, where do we put them? Where do we put them? And both together, we said, oh, we go up, you know? So we naturally went up because we had no room to expand. The store is actually not too big. It's maybe about 2,500 square feet. So it's the size about of a 7-Eleven. It's just a little more rectangular and very, very, very tall. So we went up and what's kind of cool about us going up falls right in line with this conversation. It became a natural barrier for people to steal because they couldn't reach the bottles. You know, in a regular grocery store, liquor store setup, you can only go, you know, arm's length up. These things go 15 rows up in the air, rolling library ladders. So it became a, a cool byproduct of the setup where it became a theft barrier. So it was kind of kind of really cool. So that's good to kind of set the set the stage of, of what people... So if you're walking in, you can kind of get a visualization of what this looks like. And when you started getting into this particular business, I know you since you worked at a liquor store for a very long time, did you have any idea of like, what do you need to account for in regards of theft or stolen merchandise on a monthly or yearly basis? Or is there something that it's like a, just like an entrepreneur's guide to running a liquor store when it comes to that? Well, you know, as a, a small mom and pop, you try to have zero theft, zero, because you can't afford to, you're not a big company making millions of dollars where you it's a line item on your financial and you go, ah, oh, you know what? It's one and a half percent. It is what it is, right? So you try to minimize it to nothing. But if I told you it was nothing, I'd be a fool. Your biggest theft is internal theft more than customer theft. Customers walk in, 
as the owner, you're looking at them, you're helping them. Your your eyes are almost always on them. Employees are in the back room. Sales reps are in the back room. Drivers are coming in and out of the, your place. So that's where your most significant theft comes from. But to your question, there isn't, I would say a good number is probably 1%. And as your sales go up, that number should be even lower than that. But it's definitely a line item on the financials for theft, shrinkage. Yeah, that, that's good to understand exactly where, like just how do you have to budget and kind of have to know what to expect on, on these kinds of things. So I guess the next thing is to start figuring out what sort of guardrails or safeguards do you put in place as when you're either opening the store, hiring people, kind of what's your your playbook on how do we minimize theft as much as possible? Sure. I mean, it's a multifaceted answer because from an employee standpoint, I don't like to hire anyone I don't know or doesn't get referred to highly. I'll give you just a current situation. I play basketball a couple times a week. I end up hiring a guy I played basketball with for about six months because I got to know the guy, got to know he's a good guy. And then now there's a personal relationship there. And I know the guy would never steal. At least I think he would never steal, right? And then he referred me somebody else that's a friend of his. And I said, you know, my biggest question is, do you trust the guy? We'll fix the knowledge part of it. We'll train you. We'll get you to taste and we'll get that part going. But trust is such a a, a big issue. And we'll get into a couple of big heists that I've had in the past that have kind of make me unfortunately doubt people and have this guard up when you hire somebody. And it's sad. It's really sad. But that's literally one of the top three items in considering hiring somebody is, can I hand them a key to my store? Can I trust them with the till? And more importantly, can I trust them with all this inventory? As you know, both of you sitting in your in your rooms right there, one bottle disappears. It's a thousand bucks. One bottle, you know? So that's a really big consideration point. Good deal. So I guess, well, on the topic of big heists, I guess kind of talk about one of those kind of stories. I don't want to put you through some PTSD with it, but, you know, kind of give some people an idea of sort of what are these things that you do have to look out for and and what's a real world scenario. Sure. I mean, I mean, one of the biggest ones is, is two of the biggest ones are employees. So the growing pains of having more than one unit, having more than one store is you can't be in more than one place at one time. So mention having the, uh, the, my brothers in the business. So each of them are in a business, right? So that's going to cover four of the stores between my sister and, and them. And then outside those other six have nobody from the family potentially there, right? So someone could easily walk out the store with something. And with me, as I was uh, still a CPA doing my CPA job, I wasn't in the store as often as that I, w- I would have liked to. And one of the things that was happening, trying to compete with some of these larger stores, and I'm buying 25, 50, 100 case deals, right? One of my employees took it upon himself to sell some of that to someone he knew that was in the liquor business. So his selling point was, hey, Tony buys these 50 case deals. He's got a lot of them. He's got a lot of cases and he's trying to free up some cash or or here, save some money. It's a dollar cheaper per bottle. So that was his selling point to his friends. And he would take that money and just put it in his pocket, you know? And that happened for a while until, you know, you start running out of money. You, can, you can't really sustain that model. You know, we, we are a, a, a business of, of volume. 
going back to the numbers, I know you're a numbers guy too, Kenny. We work on an average of a 30% margin. I make, and, and I, I, I say that out publicly, um, obviously hard to get items are higher margins, but you know, your bulk of all your inventory is sold on your main main items, the things you can, no, no limitation on inventory. And our net net bottom line is two to 3%. Like that's what I take home after paying everybody, paying the bills, paying this and that. Well, if someone's stealing thousands of dollars from you, right? You get to know that, right? Now, if you've got a million dollars in inventory, which I do in most of my stores, he, he got a little smarter. We were watching the cash really tight, but when three cases of, I don't know, fireball disappear off your shelf and you have 50 back there, you just assume you had a good week and now you only have 47 left, right? You're not counting the cases of fireball. So that being said, it caught up after a while. You're like, hey, how come I don't have money in the bank? You know, how come I'm having to put money in? And we started watching and and sure enough, this guy's brother was coming in the store, walking out with 20 cases of booze. Oh, wow. That's a lot. So I guess, uh, how do you, how do you find out stuff about that? I mean, other than security cameras, or is it just looking at books? Like what other kind of things are you looking to, to look for that theft? We, I mean, you have security cameras in every store, but you know, take 10 stores, take 24 hours in a day, right? You have 240 hours of footage daily. What do you watch? It's tough. Yeah. It's hard to figure out. You know, so unless you are big enough where you have a security team that's got, you know, all these cameras everywhere and uh, not the cameras, but the monitors and they're watching actively, it's tough for a small business to have any type of high end like monitoring process. It's just, you, you just got to catch small little signs or, you know, one person that we just let go had a nicer car than I did. So I'm like, how, how's that happen? You're working in the store, you're making 20 bucks an hour. How do you have a nicer uh, car? So you look just for little things, you know, little signs, little this, little that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's good to know kind of on the, the theft side of things to to kind of look to know and, and how to deter. So looking into, say, like the whiskey side of things, have you seen, I mean, I guess another good question is, is like, where do you see any kind of theft? Is it on a particular kind of product? What do you mean? Is it like, what are they stealing? Yeah, for the most part. Is there is there a, a most popular stolen product in, in the cake and bottle retail? Not really. It's whatever the highest ticket item they can get their hands on. If it's uh, in that last story, I told you the guy was literally taking an order for his store and grabbing whatever he could that he didn't think I could find. You know, that's what the guy was selling him. The other guy was just ordering stuff that he was low on his shelf, which which was pretty disheartening. Uh, needless to say, we had the guy arrested just <laughs> for the back background of the story, right? But the other day, there was a bottle of Ace of Spades that was stolen. You try to put these higher ticket items in places where they can't reach, like we kind of discussed. But we have a couple nicer stores in some nicer parts of town where someone spending 500 bucks on a bottle of champagne is not uncommon. So it was within hand's reach. Well, two people came in, they distracted the cashier. The other person grabbed the two bottles. And I mean, we watched the video, we watched the whole thing happen. And it's just, so there, I think it's a crime of opportunity. What what do you have there that's high ticket that we can take and resell? I think that's the biggest thing. There's definitely an under, a secondary market for stolen goods in the liquor business. Hmm. Now, we, you've also heard a lot of like stores getting robbed at gunpoint. When it comes to liquor stores, has that ever happened at a keg and bottle? 
Shopify's already taken the cash register online, helping millions sell billions around the world. But did you know that Shopify can do the same thing at your retail store? Give your point of sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. Shopify's point of sale is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. And with Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers inline and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. And get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone. Transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system or use Shopify's point-of-sale Go Mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash bourbon, all lowercase, and go to shopify.com slash bourbon to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash bourbon. Now, you've also heard a lot of like stores getting robbed at gunpoint when it comes to liquor stores. Has that ever happened at a keg and bottle? It has, actually. Uh, remember that first store I was telling you in Lemon Grove, California? Started off as a pretty decent neighborhood. Eventually, some it got to be a little more seedy as time, time progressed. I've personally been held up at gunpoint probably six or seven times at that particular location. Oh, gosh. Yeah. One time in particular, I was like, all right, this is it. This guy's no, not joking around. I'm done. And it's no joke. Being a young man, you're working hard. I was going to school at the time, working in my dad's store, you know, just try to make an honest living and have someone come in, hold a gun right up to your head. Let me give you this right up to your head, like this close, pushing into your head and going, give me all your money. Just trained by my mom and dad. Listen, everything's replaceable. Give them what they asked for, which did in all those instances. But this one particular time, he was like, get on the ground, say your last prayers. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is it. And and uh, yeah. And then luckily he ran out. Yeah, thank God. Yeah, that's what I'd say. That was, we went deep there for a second. You're, you're hitting me in the feels there a little bit, Tony. Huh? It's, yeah, it's not, people don't, you know, people are in, in, Outside customers looking in think it's all fun and games, and it's it's a great job. It's awesome. You know, th- this Sunday that just passed, uh, you know, a couple of days ago, guy calls out. You know, I, I wake up expecting to go to church with my family and, and kids, and and I, I see it. And when you have ten locations, there's ten opportunities for someone to call out that you can't get someone to sub in. So I put some calls in some other people, and no one wants to go to work. So guess who's going to work? That's from a labor perspective, which is a whole nother segment but from a theft perspective and it's in from a holding a gun to your head it's it's not an easy business you have money and you have booze and people want both yeah has there been a large amount of bourbon stolen or is it i I know you talked about it's just like whatever is available and whatever they can sell but let's focus for a second on like on like some bourbons like is there is there something that has been stolen, you know, pretty regularly? Obviously, all those items that we all know and love and cherish and that are allocated are definitely items people look for and try to get their hands on. There hasn't been 
too much of those items being stolen that I know of. I would say definitely from an employee standpoint, yes, the stuff's locked away and they somehow find a way to 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 get it. So yeah, absolutely, you know, pappies and other other really sought after items. But from a customer perspective, no, because we like you mentioned, locked glass cases. As you can kind of see in the background, there's the the more expensive stuff is is locked away in in, in our offices and in in our uh, cellars where people can't get to stuff. Mm. And then another part of being able to to kind of you know take care of theft from a, I think a bourbon perspective as well is that you also have a very significant online presence. And I know we have talked about before of things that you need to do, like some of those red flags when you get an order for an expensive bottle of bourbon and you're like, well, I need to go and vet this out real quick. Yeah, there's definitely, um, when you get an order, you know, you see an order and it's like 3000 bucks. You're like, oh, that's awesome. I just sold X, Y, and Z, you know? So first time that happens, you send it out, you're like, cool. And then, you know, three weeks later, you get a charge back and you're out 3000 bucks right? You try to call the person, phone number's disconnected. You try to go to the address. I mean, you don't go there, but you try to figure out where it's going and the house has been abandoned or sold or they used a house that was for sale and the guy just stood out there waiting for the UPS truck, pretending like he lived there, grabbed the package and was gone. You learn that really quick that you start vetting some of these higher end orders. And and, and that kind of goes back to your question earlier, Fred, is there certain items that people steal. So absolutely in, in that world, you start, there's uh, and without naming real, real specific names, there's certain items that lend themselves to being fraudulent items, you know? And so, and certain dollar amounts, you know, if it's over a thousand bucks, now there's two things or our, our, our new uh, software already does a fraud analysis for us. So that are, is already checking things that you and I would normally not think about, but where they placed it, IP address, of where the order was actually placed versus where the credit card address is versus where the address of where it's shipping to. So it's doing this triangular. Uh, now, in, in some cases, guy's a wealthy guy. He's got multiple houses. He's in New York, but he lives in, he works in New York, lives in LA. I mean, that's possible. So there's things like that. You don't want to discourage a wealthy customer from buying from you, but at the same time, they'll quite often they appreciate the extra steps you go through to make sure it's a legitimate order. Yeah, because I know you've had to have those conversations with people to say, hey, just checking in. I want to make sure this is on the up and up over here. So a lot of times it's just a phone call. I'll call them and most of the times it comes to me. Uh, my son Anthony's involved. He's pretty good at, and uh, Mar was actually pretty good at stalking people as well. So you'll you'll check all the addresses to see where it's going. And Fred, if it were you ordering, right, you you check your address, you check, well, this guy just spent 5,000 bucks, right? Oh, okay, cool. He lives in a, in your case, a $10 million home. <laughs> <laughs> and and you go, oh, that's legit. No worries. You know, no. You know, you kind of just see if it makes sense, right? And then the next step is calling. The next step is doing credit card and uh, ID verifications and things like that. The online component is, is something Kenny certainly, you know, familiar with, you know, with the bots and everything. And I build bots, my friend. Yeah, yeah. He were, sure. he builds bots to <laughs> to crack everything. So he's uh, he knows that world well. But one of the things in social media is like people people complain about pricing, and, and you know you've had some of that. And that and when I have talked about your retail store, some, sometimes someone in San Diego says something. But a lot of things that we've talked about here, it's kind of like none of that shit really matters 
you know, for through what you've been been through and what you have to deal with. And I'm kind of like, I listen to some of this and I'm like, Tony, is it is is it worth it? I mean, you've had a gun held to your head, you've had like you know, employees steal from you. I mean, you having this story, I was expecting to hear like hearing about people come in with like uh tinfoil line jackets and like trying to stuff things in their in their jacket. But I mean, I'm hearing something completely different than what I was expecting. And we've known each other for a long time. And I mean, it just seems like it's not a, it, it doesn't seem like I, I would want to do what you've done for 20 years. I can, I can tell you that. Yeah. It's definitely uh, that part of the business guys is, is really dark, really crazy, not fun. You know, that's, you got to take the, the good and bad. I mean, we can talk about the good for a while to make you not feel so bad for me. You know, I'm a very blessed guy. You know, we've grown this to a national brand. You know, I make a, a nice living for my family, but it comes at a cost, guys. It comes at a very, I'm a, I'm a workaholic. I'm always working. And I think anyone that, and it's not, it's not really the liquor game. I think it's the American dream. Anyone that's a self-employed guy chasing, and, and I think Kenny, Kenny's proof of this. We both were with him uh, last month and and he's always working. His phone's going off. He's he's trying to build his brand. He's building what he's done, and, and it's awesome. But all of us entrepreneurs, it comes at a cost. Anyone that's in the liquor business will attest. There's a couple other really negative potential costs. I mean, unfortunately, you hear about deaths in uh, in in stores. Uh, there was one here just the other day. Fortunately, it wasn't the retailer or, or his uh, employees, but there still was a death. I mean, there was people fighting. They probably were intoxicated. I don't know the whole story, but there was guns shot and gangs violence and, and it happened inside of a liquor store inside. You know, they could have been as an employer and owner, the, the crosshairs of all that in which I've definitely seen that type of violence. Uh, fortunately, no, no deaths have ever happened anywhere nearby, but there's that part of the business where you just got some, some seedy people that come into the stores. These stores are open late. This particular one's open till two in the morning every single day, 365 days a year. Nothing good happens after 10 p.m. Any of your moms ever told you that? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, does, when you think of something like that, does that make you want to instigate and say something and say like, you know, we're going to put out a close at 10 p.m. policy? Or is, I mean, what's the kind of level of sales that you get after 10 p.m. that would say we need to still keep the doors open? You know, in most of our stores, they do close around 10. There is a few that stay open later. And in this particular case, for this particular location, it's... Uh, it's, you know, the cost benefit is, is high enough to, to warrant it. So, um, we've definitely looked at it, but you know, when there's probably five grocery stores, uh, slash, you know, like Rite Aids and whatnot up and down the street here, drug stores that compete with us. And when they close at 10 PM, you become the only game in town. So now you're not competing on price anymore. You're competing on just being open. So it does become worth it from a financial perspective, but yeah, to your point, Fred, is it worth it? One other area of theft, and this is kind of unique to, I would say, barrel selections, is your market is unique in that you will have uh, retailers in the state of California look for those order sheets of uh, private barrel selections and try to <laughs> try to take them from you or from you, someone striking, else out there. I feel like this is going to strike a nerve. I feel like I've heard this story before. <laughs> How, yes, yes. Is, yes. That, is, that a, is that an issue? I mean that's theft as well, and in I guess that we're going into a little white collar crime now, right? <laughs> Guy sitting behind his computer, so 
all of you that are listening to this know about barrel picks and you know it's earmarked for the specific store and most of these suppliers are savvy enough and have the computer uh, technology to lock that item from anyone ordering it same way i can't order five bottles of pappy even though they're sitting at their warehouse it's got to be it's got to go through this hierarchy of of authorizations before it's released well there's people sitting and they own some stores that are in there either their sales reps are are helping them and now in in uh, california southern glazier wine and spirits has a online ordering mechanism so you, i could go in there right now and start searching for stuff and ordering it so that's happened to us several times so far where another retailer got our barrel and and sure enough uh, i'm getting a call from someone going hey how come they're selling it, not you? What, what's going on? Definitely happens and it sucks. Is that just a unique to California thing? I think it's unique to savvy online retailers. I don't know if we should name names of, of, of people that have, that have done that, uh, but two that come to mind are um, they're just trying to get something they can't have. I'll say that I've only heard of it happening in California and, and you know, word travels pretty quickly in this space. So I've never heard of it happening anywhere else. Yeah. I, th- I think we just have a really high volume of, you know, California gets great allocations and that's why we're able to get the amount of um, barrels that we're able to get and coupled in my case where I've got many locations. So now I get allocated more because of my volume. And so, yeah, I mean, that's, that's part of the problem, but now, unfortunately, so a lot of times I used to let the barrels sit there at the warehouse for an extra week or two, while we get our stickers, because we're figuring out how many bottles we ended up getting out of a barrel, we go, all right, we got 147 bottles. Okay, let's order 150 stickers. So by the time the stickers get made, sent over, because, you know, I've got 30 days to pay for it once it comes. And I have a, Kenny will tell you, it's a small space. So I don't have a big warehouse. And so we try to leave them there as long as possible. Now we no longer do that with the advent of people stealing these these cases so comes in stock we order it right away that and we try to get out the door real quick and get it in the hands of our patreon followers across the country so it's a it's a it's a it's a good system and you know i always want to say thanks for what you've been able to do for us over the years too because i remember when we talked a long long time ago and we established this partnership of kind of being able to take a lot of the barrel pick allocation you have and be able to provide them to our our audience was because at the time, you know, California wasn't a very big whiskey market five, six years ago. And you were like, sure, take it. Tell, tell me more. Like, we're, tell me how we can get going on this thing. Yeah. And that was when, when I first discovered you all, it was just me, you know, bourbon was becoming my jam and, you know, just drinking and, and, and trying to learn more. And that's how, how we met just me listening and, and, and trying to absorb, uh, you know, all, all the knowledge that you guys had to share with everybody. And, yeah, it was just a natural progression of like, hey, we can, you know, I used to get offered these barrels even a few years before that, Kenny. And, you know, it's to get 30 cases of a single malt you know, or a single barrel, excuse me, uh, you know, Jack or, or Knob or Makers, that's a lot. You know, one skew, you, you do that and that becomes a, an expensive proposition if you do that over and over again. I want to say we've done over 400 barrels at this point. It's, it's some enormous number. You know, so testament to uh, you all and getting all, all the word out there to, to everybody. And it's just been a great uh, experience. Yeah, uh, that's a great plug for the 
for the Private Barrel Club, for anybody that wants to kind of know more about the man behind the operations there, even though we've got the other woman, which is Mara, I know she kind of keeps everybody's head on a swivel and making sure that things are operating as, as about as fast as possible. So as soon as the barrel comes in, orders come in, they're packed up with bomb-proof shipping, and then they're out the door to everybody else. Yeah, we definitely got to give a shout out to Marwa. She's the best and makes the, uh, she's the engine that makes it kind of all operate on the, uh, on the back end side. Yeah. And I kind of guess last thing with the, you know, on the, on the theft sort of side as well is that, you know, we're talking about shipping and kind of going out. How often is it that somebody goes, I never got that package? Yeah, that happens. That happens. And then, you know, what, what are you going to do? You, you, we used to try to insure it through uh, UPS and FedEx and, I don't know if any of you have tried to contact them about anything. <laughs> Especially shipping booze sometimes, yeah. Yeah, so they uh, are not very helpful. Um, we hired an outside company for insurance now, so now it's kind of a no questions asked. It's 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 one and one, maybe one and a half percent of the order size is what the customer gets charged. If for any reason it's broken or something's damaged, you know, it's a pretty easy, easy replacement process. But yeah, the the adult signature thing helps minimize that I didn't get it because it has the person's signature on there. So that in addition to making sure it gets in a, a responsible adult's hands, you're also verifying that they got it. So typically from that standpoint, it's hard to say they didn't get it. But legitly, there are some packages that never make it because someone at UPS opened it and goes, oh, hey, look, look what I got. It's a real thing, you know, that happens to me all the time, you know, and and then people also like people will kind of hang out by my house and you, most of the stuff comes in my office, but I've had, st- I've had packages stolen off my doorstep before. So the, the whole world of shipping, I, I feel like there is, there is like how it should be. And then there's how everybody wants it to be. And then there's the reality of it, you know, and it, I, I think it's just, it's we need to be able to ship right but people stealing off the doorstep wouldn't happen if if the UPS driver or FedEx driver would have done their job and made sure someone signed for it at the door so yeah i've i've uh, definitely seen that i mean the other one the other day didn't even have a signature it just said proof of signature and it was blank and the guy swears up and down he never got it so i mean so those are the other parts the other lumps of talking about our business i mean I want you as a customer to have a good experience, right? If I leave the customer holding the bag, then they're never coming back. You know, they, they plaster your your bad customer service all all over the internet. So usually we take the hit on those. You know, I can't go to the insurance company and say they didn't get it because shows delivered by UPS. So a lot of times I end up, you know, taking the shorts on some of those orders. You know, when they're 50, 100 bucks, it's not the end of the world. But, you know, there's some... There's some expensive ones that you, you, you take a hit on. Yeah. I was about to say, are there any other kind of precautions that you do take in some of those those higher-end orders? I know we kind of talked about vetting it, bomb-proof packaging, adult signatures, anything else that we're missing through that process? Part of it is is when I call them, you know, some people, you know, we'll ask them, we'll email them, I'm like, hey, we need your credit card and your, um, and you know, your, your driver's license. And most of them are like, I'm not sending you that stuff, you know, so... We've had we have unique ways of going about it now. We'll, uh, where we'll face, you know, we'll call the person, we'll FaceTime the person, so we can see the ID and the credit card, so we're not sending it electronically through any media where it can kind of get taken away or stolen. So there's stuff like that. Yeah, the the bomb proof uh, you're talking about. Our breakage rate is less than half of one percent now. 
because of how she, she, in my opinion, overpacks. But I mean, the proof is in the pudding. It seldom breaks. So that part, that part's really good and how she does that. But yeah, that's the, that's the, the biggest thing on, on the theft side, stolen credit cards, people utilizing uh, someone else's credit card to get some good booze. Hmm. Man, you have a lot to deal with, my friend. <laughs> yes, sir. Yes, sir. There's definitely lots to deal with the dark side. Um, but yeah, the, uh, I think the other part, a story that I'd written down that I want to touch base with you, the people coming in and just grabbing bottles and running, you know? So being near a college campus, you've got people that are under 21 and we're really well known for taking people's IDs away. I mean, I've got stacks and stacks of ID that IDs that I take away every month of minors with fake IDs. So they know they can't use their fake ID in here. So, Sometimes they'll come in, grab a bottle and run, you know, and bourbon to what you're asking, uh, Fred has become a lot more popular with the younger folks. So it used to be where they'd come just run a, grab a 12 pack of booze and run. But now quite often, uh, I don't say quite often, but it does happen. Whatever you have on display, whether it's a stack of Elijah Craig or uh, the other day there was Jack and, and the guy grabbed, he shopped around, grabbed two bottles, you know, it was a bottle of Elijah Craig and a bottle of Jack and then took off, you know. We teach our employees not to run and chase them because that's a problem waiting to happen. But that particular one, the employee ran after him, caught him, and got the stuff back. Oh, wow. So So what happened then? You just like tackle them to the ground and take it back? Pretty much. Pretty much. In that particular, uh, I mean, the guy's running full speed. The other guy's running behind him. And we hear there's a little button we have. It's almost like a panic alarm, but it rings within the building if something's happening. And then all of a sudden everyone's like running to the, to the floor and you see a couple of people running out chasing this guy. So I tell all the employees, let the guy go. It's a $20 bottle. Um, we have had, uh, in our Santa Barbara store had someone that caught the guy, the guy turned around and hit him over the head with the bottle. Oh, and that's like the best case scenario. I mean, you know, if the guy's got a gun, a knife, whatever, they beat him up, someone else waiting there for him is nothing good can happen by chasing a thief. The guy's adrenaline's ru- rushing up. He doesn't want to get caught. There's that side of the business of just uh, grabbing goes. This could be like a TV drama, you know, just having, uh, just observing a keg and bottle for a few months. I've often thought of it <laughs> going, hey, l- let's pitch it to somebody because there's there's all kinds of other crazy things that happen that don't have to do with theft in, in the liquor business. Well, then let's go ahead and let's end it on a high note. Let's talk about allocation. No, I'm just kidding. Oh, that's a that. real high note. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. We're yeah, not going like, to do that. Send me some bottles now. No, no. <laughs> I, I feel like the two of yours allocation might be better than my allocation. What oh, allocation? Oh. I'm just saying your media samples. Like, you get one of everything. So there's some cases I don't even get one of everything, you know? We are blessed well, a little bit. Hey, look at that. No comment from Fred. <laughs> 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 I think he's right. <laughs> I, I got I got nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I got none. I'm gonna send you some. I'm gonna send you my vodka allocations. Yeah, That's I'll a, show you. You know, I'm I'm running out of like uh, hand sanitizers, so I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> well, Tony, I I know we'll be able to have you on when we think of a, another great angle to kind of talk about with with liquor stores, and I think it was a real humbling and eye opening experience to kind of talk about sort of. A your background in it, but B to kind of know exactly what are the 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 dark areas, the, the the black spots that people don't know about this industry. I mean, we we all want to talk about oh, we've got 
you know, this for X amount of price. We want to talk about barrel picks. We want to talk about the fun stuff, but we don't talk about the real things, uh, the real things that could potentially keep you away from family and friends and everything like that too. So thank you so much for sharing your insight and your history. I think it was very valuable and, and kind of really opened my eyes up into it as well. Well, thanks for having me. It's always fun to be on and hang out with you guys. So appreciate it. Where can people visit Keg and Bottle and they can find out more and where can they order stuff online? So you can order stuff online, kegandbottle.com. That's K-E-G, the letter N, like Nancy, bottle, kegandbottle.com. And then social media is USA. So find us on all the different socials on that. And don't forget, people love getting booze for gifts. So think of us when you're thinking of someone's birthday or anniversary and whatnot. And I, I turn uh, the big 5-0 this year, so... A lot of gifts have been going out are age statement bottles. So start thinking about some of those for your loved ones of what year they were born. We're selling a boatload of, should I say what year? 1972. 1972. So buy some of those, some 73s, some 74s, because what I found out is 72 bottles this year went up 3x because so many age statement bottles from that particular year um, went out. So there is your tip on what to buy that's going to go up in price next year. There you go. Buy it now before it goes up. That's that's the... Get up on it. <laughs> make those sales now, right, Tony? Let's not wait. Yep. Well, make sure you follow Keg and Bottle. Follow Fred Minnick. Follow Bourbon Pursuit, wherever you get your socials. If you do like the show, make sure you leave us a review. Tell a friend. Share it with somebody else. If you've got another friend that's a liquor store and say, hey, is this is this the same thing you deal with too? Maybe you can go and have a pour with them and, and share some more stories and stuff like that too and kind of understand what, what they deal with on a, on a day-to-day basis. But with that, cheers, everybody. We'll see you next week.